0: For me, this is a very, a very interesting passage, and, and I think ripe with, with so much. Um, and, and of course, I can only scratch the surface. One of the things that I definitely want all of you to get in the habit of doing is I'm certainly going to offer an interpretation you know, every Sunday, and I'll make sure that my interpretation is in keeping with you know, sort of the, the confines of church teaching, as I always do. But we should never think that I have the last word on anything like this, right? Because the scriptures are so full of meaning. What I would like you to get in the habit of doing is receiving that, whatever I offer or whatever you hear somewhere else, and then having your own encounter with it as well. So how does this, you know, how do the scriptures speak to you, etc.? So anyway, I'll go through this here today and um, remember setting it up, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other, like really, really hated each other. I'm not talking about Green Bay Packer fans, Minnesota Viking fans. I mean, you know, because they're Midwesterners. Everybody's nice in the Midwest, pretty much. But but I mean, like, life and death hate, serious hatred. Probably something similar to Palestinians and Israelis, you know, to this day. That kind of enmity where there would be violence and killing, serious stuff. The Jews hated the Samaritans because they believed the Samaritans had taken the same faith that they had received, but the Samaritans polluted the faith. They disfigured it, and they began to worship incorrectly. And so religiously, and then of course there's all the other things that come into it, but religiously they, they saw the the Samaritans as having really forsaken the covenant and the divine revelation that had been given to them. They were sort of traitors to the faith, as it were. So a lot of bad blood. This is why when we talk about the good Samaritan, the whole point is that it would not have been expected that a Samaritan would have helped a Jew who was lying near dead on the side of the road. It would have been expected the Samaritan would have walked by and said good riddance, that kind of thing. That he didn't was a really big deal. That's what was so amazing about it, is that it was the Samaritan who stopped not any of the Jewish priests. Okay, so, hatred. So now here's Jesus walking through, you know, they're traveling through Samaritan territory, and there's the well, and the woman comes to the well. And one of the things I like to to remember is that the interaction here, just like all of the interactions with Jesus, are going to be very human. Um, you know, as, as they're written down and then we, we talk about them throughout the years, the story becomes sort of a story and it, it can sometimes become a bit detached from that real human interaction. But here's this woman walking up to get her water and there's this Jewish man demanding, hey, give, us, give me some water. And you can almost hear her saying, you know, like when you go shopping and there's those people trying to force you to try stuff. And you're like, leave me alone. I just want to get, you know, whatever, you know, leave me alone. Um, Maybe that's just me. I know that isn't just me, but it's kind of like that. She's going to get her water and there's Jesus asking her for something. And he's a Jew. And out in the open here, you have a single woman and a man who happens to be a rabbi. She didn't know that yet. But that sort of thing, it, it, it wasn't kosher, truly, to speak of it that way, um, with the times that a, that a man would approach a, a woman like that openly, right? It was, it was not the decorum of the day. But furthermore, she knew he was a Jew. And what do you want? What do you, you talk? You can tell, right? I mean, if you really think about it, she would have been annoyed. Just totally annoyed. And uh, she's like, why are you asking me for water? Well, if you would have known who it is that's asking you for water, you would have asked me for water. What are you talking about? I would ask you for water. Yeah, the water that I will give is living water. Now, living water... Is water like from a spring or a stream? It's water that's moving. That's what living water means. It's, it's moving and flowing. And so she's like, you don't even have a bucket. What are you talking? I mean, you can kind of hear it, right? If you really put yourself in there, she's like, you don't even have a bucket. What are you talking about? Where are you going to get living water? You're better than Jacob, our ancestor, who gave us the well? Come on. And then he says, no, the water that I would give would well up within you and you would never thirst again. And one of the things, her response here, I wonder if she's being sarcastic or if she's, I I don't know. I I feel like, well, it's just my nature to think she's being sarcastic because she's like, okay, fine, give me that water and then I don't have to come back and with my bucket to the well, I can just exist and I'm going to have this water and I'll never thirst again. Maybe she's not being sarcastic. Maybe that reveals more about me than the woman. But, um, you know, because, but here's the the deal. Here's why I think maybe she was kind of still blowing him off, because he turns the tables on her then. And then he says, bring your husband, which I find to be just curious, right? Unless she's still not open. She's not open to what he has to say. Because then he goes toward this issue that she clearly is going to be maybe embarrassed about or ashamed about or, you know, something like that. Go bring your husband. What? I don't have a husband. She's not telling the full truth. You know, she's skirting around the issue. Yeah, I know. You've been married five times. Whoops. And you're living with a guy and you're not married to him. Another problem. And at that moment, she's open to him being a prophet. I can see that you're a prophet. Then she becomes curious about all the God stuff. Before that, it was just about this water. But he brings up this issue, and then she, her heart is open, her mind is opened to what he might have to say. I can see you're a prophet. I believe the Messiah is coming too. I'm he, the one talking to you. And then it all changes Right, The whole dynamic changes because of this. Now, what's interesting to me about this is once again, Jesus speaks the truth about her reality, but he doesn't shame her. He doesn't say to her, and, and he's, not, he's not excusing her actions, that what she's doing is okay. Not, he's not saying that. But it's almost as if Bringing that out into the open for her allowed her to receive god's word, like it was the thing that maybe the secret or the uh, the stumbling block or the barricade to God for her right and she knew it and whatever for whatever reason she found herself in that situation or made those decisions, that reality of of living with somebody not married, she's not married to, and then her whole history, whatever that was, maybe that filled her with a lot of shame or guilt or, you know, whatever. But when Jesus says, look, I know, I know, she just lets her guard down. That to me is really what sticks out in this gospel. When God says, I know, she just lets it, all go, and she all of a sudden has room for faith, which is what he's after. He is after her faith. That's what God's after—faith. And so, the more that I think about that, the more I, I recognize that in everybody's life. Now, for somebody who doesn't believe, often there's some roadblock, some barricade, right? And I'm I'm not so uh, naive or new at this that. I think that everybody here today is just has this amazing faith, right? Everybody's in a different spot. And our faith tends to fluctuate, right? Depending on our trials, depending on tribulations, our suffering, depending on our sinfulness, our faith tends to be, it it moves. It doesn't just stay static. And what God is constantly trying to do is to get us to grow our faith, which he can give us the grace to assist, but then it takes decision. Faith is also a decision. It's a gift and it's a decision. It's a gift from God. Um, we receive a baptism, this, this seed of faith, of belief, and then we've got to grow it. And we can let it go. We can, nobody loses their faith every time somebody has said that to me. Well, Father, I lost my faith. I'm like, really, with your keys, where'd it go? You didn't lose your faith. You left your faith. You made a decision to stop believing. And it's nobody's fault but yours. It's Lent, so I got to be kind of tough today. So <laughs> we got five more weeks, then I'll be happy again. But, you know, it's Lent, so let's. we got to be frank and look at some of this stuff. And that's okay. Okay. Um, So people don't just lose their faith, but oftentimes they'll blame other things or other people for why their faith has weakened. And again, this is to offload our responsibility. The only person who is responsible for our faith is ourselves. Now, when we're little, you know, the little ones here, yes, your parents are helping you. But even if you're little... Your relationship with Jesus is something very, very important that you need to nurture, no matter your age. If you're a teenager and you're just being forced to come here or you're only here for the donuts, makes sense. Um, But still, it's not about your parents. It's about you, the decision you make. And then, of course, all you old people like me, same. We make choices. Those choices are either for God or against God. But here's the thing, what's... So he speaks to this woman and he says, basically, I know the roadblock. I know what it is. This is what it is. And he didn't really even reveal it all. She revealed it. I mean, really, there's a confession here that happens. She's confessing this sin or roadblock or shame or whatever it would be in her life that was holding her back. And once she confessed that, once it was in the open... She was able to move deeper into faith, and so for ourselves, I think this dynamic is really important to look at, because I think every single one of us have roadblocks. We might have a big roadblock, and and again, it can change month to month, year to year. Um, It might be more than one. It might be one big one. You know, one big sin we've been holding on to. We just don't believe can be forgiven. It might be uh, habits that that are, are getting in the way. It might be resentment. It might be, you know, a lack of forgiveness. It might be anger at God. It, uh, it could be a, all kinds of things. But what I do find is that this is the dynamic of faith. Part of the dynamic is we get these roadblocks and we have a hard time getting past them. Going back to this dynamic with a woman, from God's perspective... You know, from our perspective, the roadblock is a big deal. From God's perspective, it's not. And I'm not saying that if it's sin, it doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that sin doesn't matter, it doesn't have importance. But from God's perspective, who is omnipotent, all-powerful, all-loving, all-merciful, from his perspective, it's just not a big deal. I, I talk about this often, you know, with how I hear confessions. I'm like, just tell me. Just We're taking out the garbage. Just tell me the stuff. And a lot of times people want to justify it or talk about it because they feel bad or they feel guilty. And I'm like, I don't care. Not because I don't care about you. I do care about you. But the stuff, the bad stuff or the choices we made, no, it, it, it's, not a, it's not as big of a deal as we make it. We just need to get it forgiven and offload it. Speaking of things that should be offloaded, that's the kind of thing we need to let go of. And so from God's perspective, he wants the faith. It doesn't matter that that woman is in a a situation that is irregular and, and sinful or whatever. He wants her faith. And how many other times have we seen that with the Lord? He's meeting with other people. He's talking to people he shouldn't be. He's eating with people he shouldn't be. So the apostles show up, you know, and they were told they wonder why is he talking to this woman, but nobody asked him because by now they're used to it, right? By now they're just like, well, there's Jesus doing what he shouldn't again. <laughs> right? They're just used to it. It's like old hat for them. They'll figure it out later. What were you doing? You know, and he shared it with them, I'm sure. But they're used to that by now. And so here's my last point. There's so many people in this church you don't think you're good enough. You don't think that God could possibly love you or that the things you've done are too much or that there's no way past maybe the resentment or the feelings you have or the anger or the hurt, whatever it is. And I'm telling you that the God we have, the only God there is, is the God who loves you desperately and desires your faith Nothing you've done is too much. Nothing you're doing is too much. Your situation is not insurmountable, whatever it is. God desires your faith, and he's never going to stop trying to get you home, trying to get you back to his father. So you might as well just give up. Just let it go. It's not nearly a big hurdle for God as it is for you. So give it to him. Let him take it. Let him redeem you and resurrect you and make you whole. Please stand.